0: So now I'm going to read a section of an article from Wired, from Narch, Narch, March, God.
1: <laughs> Sorry, Narch.
0: Welcome to Tech Tales. I'm Corbin Davenport. I'm Katie Jansen. And today we're talking about two video game emulators called Bleem and Connectix VGS, and BLEEM bleem is spelled B-L-E-E-M with an exclamation mark at the end always. So, legally, when I have to talk about it, I gotta yell BLEEM. BLEEM! BLEEM! It's a lot of fun. But these are kind of cool because they're one of the few examples of commercially sold video game emulators. Oh, wow. These were both emulators for the PlayStation 1 when it was new. So if you imagine like if today you could go to Best Buy or Walmart or something and on the shelves was a PS5 emulator. that That's kind of like what this was like.
1: The Great Value PlayStation 1. Yes. The Joybox Uno.
0: Yeah. So the Sony PlayStation was released in December 1994 and it didn't take too long for some emulators for the console to start showing up. One of the early ones was PSMU Pro, but uh, none of them were were very good. You know, they had didn't work with a lot of games. So these were software for contemporary PCs
1: of the era, or
0: yeah. So they would let you run PlayStation games on a on a computer. Okay. So usually PCs. I don't know if there were any early ones for Mac, but did you ever use a PlayStation One by any chance?
1: So uh, I rented a.
0: A PlayStation 1 from Blockbuster
1: a few times uh, for my birthday. Thanks, Mom. Um, <laughs> and, and I think my, my cousin, he had one, I, I'm pretty sure. I think I played... A, was Amplitude on the PS1 or was it on the... That was only the PS2.
0: I have no idea.
1: I remember them being around like in, in doctor's office waiting rooms and things, but I I never had one.
0: Well, I'm in the same boat. I never had a PlayStation 1. My My first console was a Nintendo Wii.
1: I had a DS, then a PlayStation 2, and then a
0: Wii. DS was great. Excellent console.
1: Based DS.
0: Based DS. So the first emulator we're going to talk about is the Connectix Virtual Game System, or Connectix VGS for short. Have you heard of Connectix at all, the company?
1: Uh, Briefly here and there, but very little.
0: They were a pretty big software developer, especially for the Mac, one of their first big products was a virtual memory manager for the Mac that actually predated any kind of virtual memory in the Macintosh operating oh, system. Wow. Yeah, they, and they, they made a bunch of other utilities like that. In 1994, they created the QuickCam, which was kind of the first webcam. Um, and they, they ended up selling that to Logitech in 1998. But yes, yeah, so they, they kind of made the modern webcam sort of Probably their most, I don't know if influential is the right word here, but like their most influential product was Virtual PC, which was an application for Windows, Mac, and OS2 that emulated an entire x86 PC. So you could use it to run Windows on a Mac, you could use it to run DOS on, on Windows, whatever you needed that was based around a PC architecture. And for a while, that was kind of one of the best ways to run Windows software on a Macintosh. And they actually later sold that to Microsoft, which became Microsoft Virtual PC.
1: This was x86 hardware chipset emulation? or or Yes.
0: Yeah. Like it emulated a whole like Intel PC.
1: And this is still in 1994?
0: I don't know when they started development on it, but it was really popular around the late 90s. And then they sold it to Microsoft and then Microsoft kept working on it for another couple years. That's incredible. It really only faded away when Apple started transitioning to Intel chips, and then you could use, like, actual virtualization software.
1: I don't have the dates for the the, the hardware transitions on the top of my head, but I want to say PowerPC to Intel was, like, 2006?
0: Yes. Yeah, it was 2006, 2007-ish.
1: Because I think, was it Snow Leopard was the first Intel-only version of Mac OS X?
0: Yes. Yes. Snow Leopard was the first. That was only Intel. I think that was like 09. I'm pretty sure. So all that is to say that this is not their first rodeo with emulation. They know how to they know how to do that. So in around July 1998, they start working on a PS1 emulator. Now, the big problem with developing a PlayStation 1 emulator is the BIOS. Just like a modern computer, the PS1 had a BIOS that displayed the boot screen and it handled loading games from disks and other really low-level functions. So the emulator needed to have some kind of implementation of this BIOS on top of emulating all the chips and and controllers and everything else that the console had.
1: When I definitely wasn't uh, looking at a PlayStation 2 emulator, it even had, or I think it may have had, a warning that like you must dump your own copy of the bios and an in- a version supplied from the internet will not work
0: and then a version supplied from the internet did work
1: hypothetically
0: hypothetically of allegedly
1: <laughs> some have said we can-
0: <laughs> we cannot confirm
1: nor deny
0: so so Connectix started testing its emulator by actually purchasing a PlayStation and dumping the bios themselves They also tried to reference a disassembled copy of the BIOS that was previously leaked online, but they gave up on that after realizing it was the Japanese language version of the BIOS. That bit of information is, I think, from one of the legal documents that comes up later. There's no explanation for why that's an issue, and I don't know why. I know a lot of the early consoles they actually worked pretty differently depending on where you bought them because they were tied to the refresh rates of the the televisions and monitors in that country and they varied a lot so i don't know if the playstation one was was like that or if um so i don't know what the issue was there but that was apparently an issue
1: and so the the bios is stored inside the the system on like dedicated yeah, it's Ram on like chip. a flash memory chip Our somewhere. Our flash memory chip, yeah, that's a better way to say it.
0: Yeah, so I don't know why the, the it being in Japanese was an issue, but apparently it was. Japanese
1: variable names. <laughs> Konnichiwa world. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so in September of 1998, Connectix actually contacted Sony to ask for technical assistance. Like, they w- they were trying to make this, like, official.
1: Amazing
0: the two companies actually did have a meeting but in the end sony declined to help connectix so they were on their own that is that is very wild like if if you if you called up microsoft today and said you had a you you were working on a xbox series x emulator and you needed some help they would they would not go to a meeting with you that that has big like calling up the bank and like hey will you help me open the
1: vault uh, i would yeah. really appreciate that
0: energy <laughs> So they, they kept working on the emulator on their own, and finally they actually ended up releasing this in January of 1999 for $49, and the final name was the Virtual Game System, or, VG- or Connectix VGS. So now I'm actually going to read part of their press release from 1999. They said, quote, Connectix Corporation today announced the release of Connectix Virtual Game Station, a software program that enables popular PlayStation games to run on G3 Macintosh computers. Connectix Virtual Game Station comes with ready-to-use support for your keyboard and mouse. It also supports input devices such as gamepads and joysticks. Regardless of the device used for gameplay, keyboard, joystick, gamepad, or something else, the user has the ability to define the functions associated with the various buttons and keys. Roy McDonald, president and CEO of Connectix, said, Quote, Connectix Virtual Game Station is designed to enable users to run some of the world's most popular games right on their Macintosh and should significantly expand the gaming possibilities for the Macintosh platform. While the product is not a perfect substitute for the Sony PlayStation console, we believe our customers will be pleased with the experience of using games on Connectix Virtual Game Station on their Macs. Quote.
1: So at this point in time, are you supplying the emulator with ROM fi- with ISO images, or are no. you putting PlayStation discs into your Macintosh disk drive?:
0: You're putting PlayStation discs into your Mac. That's,
1: that's amazing.:
0: Yeah, that's, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later because that's, that comes up with the other emulator too, but that's the main way these companies tried to make this as legal as possible. Incredible. So actually, now I have a video clip for us to watch from Macworld 1999, where uh, Apple actually shows off this emulator. So we get, a, we get a surprise Steve Jobs appearance in this episode. Already. All right, on three, one,
1: two, three. We're really, really excited about games, and again, our goal is to have the best game machine in the world. Now. This is another game machine. It's the most popular game machine in the world. Wouldn't it be great if if we could play some of those titles too? (laughs) Hmm. Well, at Macworld today, Connectix is introducing the virtual game station. It is software. It is software that they're gonna sell for $49 that turns your Mac into a Sony PlayStation. It plays a few hundred, it, it plays a few hundred of the Sony PlayStation games today, and I'd like to ask Phil to come back and give us a quick demo. Phil?
2: Hey, Steve. <laughs> this, is, this is Cool Times 10, and the ability for, very quickly, very affordably, to take a Macintosh, my Macintosh, and run all the great, PlayStation titles just stick in my CD drive and start to play them, it's just a phenomenal idea. So I have here a Mac, and sure enough, no surprise running, is Connectic Virtual Game Station. Because we have USB, we have a lot of great new game controllers. I have a game controller that looks just like the kind of controller you'd use for these titles. And let me get it started again. So here I am in Crash Bandicoot. This is the number one Sony PlayStation title shipping today. And with all the same kind of great performance, it's the kind of game my son would love. Allows me to jump, run around, use the same controls. And if I was any good, look. Now I'm so good at this that I don't have enough time to keep playing or would run out of time. But there you go, working just like on a PlayStation, same controls, same title.
1: I must say like it's a little bit hard to tell with like the the low quality of the video footage itself but but this is actually a fairly impressive demonstration for being in 1999 looking at this in 2022.
0: Yeah, there's some stutters in this video because I don't know if this was a pre-release build or not, but it is running I believe at higher resolution than the PlayStation console itself. Um and it's it's just you know they're just playing crash bandicoot it is it is very funny to me to watch Steve Jobs and Phil Schiller talk about an emulator on stage at a at a Mac press event
1: going so far when, as to say it turns your Mac into a playstation
0: yeah, not only would Apple not go within a fifty mile radius of anything like this today with you know their their policies on emulation on the app store but also just you know the fact that like without really Sony's involvement they're they're ta- like specifically name dropping the PlayStation
1: I wonder if that's partially what would eventually inspire them to go on to be so strict about having emulators not be on their platforms because because they got ruthless about it eventually and
0: I think that's part of it I think the main issue or at least Apple's reasoning for this is that emulation is is more of a security risk because, like, Apple's big thing on the iPhone is that they don't want, like, the ability to compile and run code on their on their iPhones. Like, they want to see all the code in the application that you're submitting, or the game or whatever, um, to be able to check everything. And they can't do that if you're just, like, you know, executing arbitrary code that they haven't seen.
1: I don't know if you would know this, because I, I was under the impression that, that they had relaxed this somewhat with... With them allowing apps to like run Python or or Scriptable, which runs JavaScript, or uh, ISH, which has that, that whole uh, terminal environment. Yeah, like environment. it's like
0: Linux. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's emulating a whole x86 Linux.
0: Yeah. I, I think they've relaxed on it a little bit. And also, of course, there's the whole thing where like the entire point of a web browser is to download and run arbitrary code.
1: Web browser is a good point because the only, the only uh, web browser engine is WebKit on on iOS.
0: Yeah, they don't allow uh, other web browsing engines. So that that's kind of a, a funny look at history when Apple was very excited about a PlayStation One emulator. Now, Sony actually ended up filing several lawsuits against Connectix throughout 1999 and 2000. Most of the lawsuits were specifically about Connectix implementation of the PS1 BIOS. So... They didn't like that it shipped with an equivalent to the PlayStation BIOS. This is where we come to the the principle
1: of clean room design.
0: Right. Some of the other lawsuits were more specific to copyright and trademark infringement because they did reference the PlayStation in advertising. You know, like we saw in that video, they they name dropped the PlayStation a couple times. Actually, Steve Jobs actually showed like a picture of the PlayStation on on stage uh, when he was talking about it.
1: Trademark lawyers is where they'll where they'll nail you to the wall.
0: So Connectix actually was able to successfully argue that testing with Sony's BIOS fall under fair use because the final version of their application contained no Sony code.
1: So they tried to nail them for for using Sony's code just like in development testing.
0: Right, like initially when they started testing this, they went out and bought a PlayStation. ...and looked at the BIOS, but they didn't end up using any of that code in the final application. It was it was all a re-implementation.
1: What does the BIOS do in a PlayStation uh, as far as the running of the game is concerned?
0: It, like, initializes the game. Like, it has, like, a few low-level functions. It reads the game from the disk... And I think it might also be what interacts with, like, the, the save storage, because there was, like, the, so, like, the save modules. Yeah.
1: Right, because, like, the, the older consoles didn't even have BIOS, mostly, right? Like, they just were hardware that performed the operations on the, on the cartridges.
0: Yeah, they just, like, bootstrapped it. In January 1999, we got Virtual Game Station 1.1 which increased the list of compatible games from 100 games to over 150. Big jump. Yeah, very rapidly they're they're adding support for more games. Then a few months later in March 1999, they released version 1.2, and this update actually added support for save files created by DexDrive, which was a third-party PlayStation and Nintendo 64 memory card reader accessory for PCs. So you could like take your save file from a real PlayStation and like dump the contents to your computer and then play PS1 games on your Mac with that. Because theoretically the
1: purpose of the of the DEX drive is for like backing up your, your save data or for storing right. storing yeah. save data on your hard drive so you can erase it from your memory card to play other games. But so you could delete your Madden save to play I don't know, Jack and Dexter or something. I don't I I didn't play the PlayStation. <laughs>
0: You're like, uh, Angry Birds? I don't know. <laughs>
1: they had
0: they had Halo on the PS1, right? So that same month in March of 1999, the San Francisco Federal District Court rejected requests from Sony to block the sale of Connectix VGS. So they tried again to get stores to stop selling unless they were unsuccessful. In March of 2000, Connectix released a Windows version of the emulator for $29, and the Windows version was compatible with PCs that had Pentium 2, Pentium 3, or Celeron processors uh, running either Windows 95 or Windows 98. And there were obviously more uh, Windows PCs than there were Macs, so it was a pretty big uh, opportunity for Connectix here.
1: What was the processor architecture of the PlayStation? Was was it PowerPC? Because are we it came to Mac first. Was that because of a shared architecture or, or some other reason?
0: I believe it mostly came to Mac first just because Connectix was really invested in the Mac specifically.
1: The software house.
0: Yeah. Sony and Connectix did keep going back and forth in courts until they reached a settlement in March of 2001. The result of the settlement was that Sony agreed to purchase Virtual Game Station from Connectix, and Connectix agreed to stop selling it at the end of June of 2001. And they said at the time they were going to work together on future emulation technology. I'm not really sure if anything happened there.
1: I don't know if you can keep this in, but that makes me think of how uh, Nintendo purchased uh, the rights to a parody of Super Mario Brothers, uh, so they could bar all distribution of it permanently.
0: Yeah, yeah, this is definitely like a uh we're we're buying this to kill it situation. Yeah. So, that's really the end of Connectix Virtual Game Station. By the time it was discontinued, there were 490 games that were either fully supported or were undergoing compatibility testing. Some of the games that it did officially work with were Castlevania, Bomberman World, Civilization 2, Command & Conquer, Crash Bandicoot, Crash Bandicoot 2, Diablo, Doom 1. I don't know why you would emulate Doom 1 because there is Doom for the Mac, but that's fine. FIFA Soccer 97, Mortal Kombat Trilogy, Need for Speed 3, Hot Pursuit, and Spyro 2. So like most games you would want to play on the PlayStation 1, you could play through this.
1: 490 is is definitely a pretty big number. I don't know how that compares to the the PlayStation's total library. But if you've got the hits then then that's what you really want.
0: Yeah. And that's that's pretty impressive for an emulator that is in development while the console is still being sold. For sure. Usually usually with emulators that aren't made by large companies, it's usually a few years after console sort of like exits its main lifetime that we start to get really good compatibility.
1: It's been close to it's been close to twenty years now, and I think they're still making strides in Nintendo sixty four emulation. Is what I've always heard.
0: Yeah, Dolphin, the the GameCube and Wii emulator, is still under active development. Like they're still rewriting huge chunks of it to make it as compatible as possible. So that was Connectix Virtual Game Station. Now we're gonna talk about Bleem, which is another PS one emulator. Bleem, we're talking about Bleem. This, this is the one that I think more people know about, I think. Bleem was another PS1 emulator in development around this time, and it was primarily made by two people. So this is completely different than Connectix, which was already a, a huge company with a lot of resources behind them. So the two people primarily working on this at the start were David Herposheimer, I hope I pronounced that right, That was the company president when they created the Bleem company. He previously worked at IBM, Kodak, and Apple. And the other person was Randy Lennon, who was the main programmer, who had previously worked on Doom for the Super Nintendo and Dragon's Lair for the Commodore 64. So now I'm going to read a section of a Wired article from March of 1999 that kind of explains what Bleem is trying to do. Bleem! Bleem! They said, quote, a new software emulator that turns Pentium PCs into Sony PlayStations may be challenged in court by the Japanese electronics giant. Like the Connectix Virtual Game Station released in January, the Bleem emulator released on Monday turns a personal computer into a $120 PlayStation game console. Unlike the Connectix product, the Bleem emulator doesn't require a fast new PowerMac G3. BLEAM says its emulator will run on older 166 MHz Pentium systems. A demonstration version of the emulator is available from BLEAM's website. The full product will be released on April 10th for $39.95. The demo version has a limited resolution, will not save games, has no sound effects, and does not support 3D graphics. David, a partner of BLEAM, said, quote, If Sony wants to get litigious with us, it will be very tough. They have a very, very big stick, and they could bludgeon us to death with lawyers if they wanted to. There's not a bit of code in there that Sony can say is theirs. Legally, they don't have a leg to stand on. Quote. Bold claims. Yeah. That same month, Bleem's developer held a... Bleem? Bleem's developer held a, quote, Bleemathon quote in Los Angeles. And this is actually when, again, like, showing how small of an operation this is, this is when the developers asked people in the Los Angeles area to visit with their, like, PlayStation game collections so they could <laughs> try to nail down testing. And in the end, seven people showed up with a total of 300 PlayStation games. So that's that's pretty good. I have a
1: supremely important question about the Bleemathon. Okay. Does Bleemathon have an exclamation point?
0: N- not that I saw. uh.
1: If Bleemathon wore an exclamation point, would it be after the M or after the N? <laughs> Bleemathon.
0: I think it would have to be after the M. It would sound weird, would but that so. that would be grammatically correct.
1: I I agree.
0: So they mentioned in that wired interview that they think Sony would try to sue them, and they did, but in April of 1999, a federal judge rejected Sony's request for a restraining order to block Bleem from shipping. Sony was trying to keep this from actually being released, and they failed. After this judgment, Bleem made a post on their website. They said, quote, As most of you probably know already, Bleem LLC is the latest addition to the expanding list of defendants in lawsuit brought by Sony over the PlayStation gaming platform. Earlier today, a federal district court judge in San Francisco denied Sony's request for a temporary restraining order to delay the launch of Bleem and delivery of your pre-orders. So for those of you who freaked out a little bit when the news broke yesterday, have no fear. We're going to ship and we are working non-stop to get BLEEM out the door. While today's decision is certainly great news for us and BLEEM fans everywhere, we can't help but be a little disappointed. Maybe it was naive, but we were actually a bit shocked when Sony chose to pursue this course of action. If you followed BLEEM for any length of time, you know that we're big fans of the PlayStation platform. From the get-go, our design philosophy has never been to compete with the PlayStation, but to complement the PlayStation by bringing its huge library of quality game software to millions of PC users. Quote. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like, they definitely, like, weren't trying to compete with the PlayStation, because that's where the games were coming from. But they were, like, it, it would definitely take away PlayStation sales if you could go buy... You know, Spyro, and play it without buying the box.
1: I've got to say, it's pretty cool that that uh, these judges are striking down these these uh, actions trying to be taken by these big corporations against these small teams.
0: And that BLEEM is is like trying to fight it because again, like they're very small operation; they don't have a lot of money for this. That does end up being an issue later on, but for now, they're they're winning. I wonder if this
1: would prove to be a blemish on Sony's legal record. <laughs>
0: That was good. In April of 1999, Bleem started shipping retail CD discs. So the the emulator was officially for sale. You could go and buy it. And the final release version was actually really impressive. The emulator used DirectX and hardware-accelerated 3D graphics to run PlayStation 1 games at higher-than-native resolution. So this was using... You know what was new at the time, which was the DirectX APIs in Windows. So the the PlayStation One had a native resolution of three hundred and twenty by two hundred pixels. Bleem supported six hundred and forty by 480, 800 by six hundred, and higher if if your PC could handle it. That is an enormous jump. Yeah, again, just like Connectix emulator, Bleem was only intended to be used with legal purchase PlayStation games. So. You, so we're you, still
1: running discs out of the out of the CD right. drive.
0: Yeah, you're you're putting the Bleem disc in, and then you're taking it out once it's loaded, and then you're putting in the PlayStation disc to play it.
1: And then if you're playing VibRubin, you take that out and put in a music CD.
0: Yeah, you need a whole stack of CDs. And even though you, you needed the disc to run the emulator, like that was kind of their DRM, they did provide updates for free.
1: Yeah, that that's always crazy to me when I go and I look back at at older software like point updates were charged for.
0: Yeah. So again, like cool people over there at Bleem Bleem. So at E3 2000, they actually reveal a different version which is Bleem for the Sega Dreamcast. More like the Sega Bleemcast. They actually did call it Bleemcast. <laughs> oh, really?
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good good they should have too many times these these projects like don't have the name that you wish they'd have like i think of uh when when destiny 2 came out i was really like hoping for them to call it Mm destiny when uh when splatoon 2 came out i was really hoping for them to call it splatoon and and nobody 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 wants to make me happy i'm i'm glad bleemcast is the exception this is this is good
0: yeah Yeah, so like, just to reiterate, this is an emulator for a video game console running on a different video game console of almost the same era. I think the Dreamcast was officially one generation after the PS1, I think. So are you putting a PlayStation disc into your Dreamcast? Yes.
1: (laughs) That's, yeah, uh, that's so that's such a good image to imagine.
0: Yeah, so just like the PC version, the Dreamcast version could render most PlayStation games at higher-than-native resolution, and for some games, it could add anti-aliasing and bilinear filtering. So the games, again, like some games, not all of them, but some games looked a lot better than they did on the PlayStation. Now, one of the challenges with porting an emulator to a console is that it's at least a console of this time. It's really hard to update that. So like on the PC, they were releasing updates that improved game support, but they, you know, it, it was kind of hard to like hot patch a, a game in 2000 for a console. So their plan was to release what they called Bleam packs, which were $20 each. And each of those would support 100 games. Basically, like you would buy one Bleem Pack, which was like the emulator. It's not like an add-on; like it's the full emulator, and that would have a hundred games certified for it. And then they would release another Bleem Pack that had another hundred games.
1: For the PC version, they were delivering software updates for free. Were these yes. were these installed over the internet, or were they sending you like another CD with?
0: No, no, they were downloaded, but you still needed the original CD as like the like the. DRM basically so it would check to see if you had actually bought Bleem so they announced that Bleem pack strategy at E3 2000 but they actually ended up changing that they said that it was taking hundreds of hours of work for each game to be emulated properly on the Dreamcast and they had a bunch of people telling Bleem that they didn't want to buy $20 packs that only contained a handful of the games they owned. Right, so like you could get into this situation where if you have three games, they might be in three separate bleam packs, and then you have to buy like you know, twenty dollars for each of those because they're not in the same list of, of games.
1: That's a pretty rough situation.
0: So they change their strategy, they decide to instead release a bleam disc for every game they support, and those discs would be five dollars and ninety-five cents. However, they only ended up releasing three game discs in total. They released one for Metal Gear Solid, for Gran Turismo 2, and one for Tekken 3. And part of the reason why there were only three that were released, it wasn't necessarily because they have legal problems later on. It was more so because by the time they get this onto the market, this, the Dreamcast is already pretty much dead. right? Like This, this was Sega's last console. It didn't sell well. By January 2001, it was officially discontinued after only three years on the market. By the time the Dreamcast was discontinued, the PlayStation 2 was already out. So it was, it was like this combination of the games people really want to play aren't on the PlayStation 1 anymore after that point. And also the number of people using the Dreamcast was already pretty small, but now it's its deteriorating. So there wasn't a lot of demand for this anymore.
1: And then every PlayStation Two is fully backwards compatible with the PlayStation One, right?
0: I think I think they they might have ripped that out later, but I'm I th- I'm pretty sure that original model was backwards compatible. So now I'm actually gonna send you a video of someone running Gran Turismo Two on Bleem for the Dreamcast, so bleem? You can Bleem, so you can see how it works. Three, two, one, play.
1: The sound effects are very good.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, like this is a like fully 3D racing game for the PlayStation One, and it's running pretty well on the Dreamcast. Yeah, like this does not look emulated, especially emulated on a video game console.
1: So the original resolution of the PlayStation was 320 by 200. This is more than double the original resolution. The only way you can really kind of tell that it's emulated is like the UI elements are a little are a little blurry because they're probably intended for that fixed resolution.:
0: Yeah, they're but being like great. scaled up. Yeah. Yeah. no, it's like really impressive stuff here. Now, here's another twist in the the Bleam story. Microsoft was reportedly interested in bringing BLEEM to the original Xbox console. According to the president of BLEEM, his company worked with the Xbox team to create a custom fast-loading version of BLEEM. BLEEM. Which was then actually shown to Bill Gates running Gran Turismo 2. So Bill Gates saw kind of what we just saw, but running on an Xbox.
1: Incredible.
0: Yeah. Bleem negotiated with Microsoft for months and supposedly made an offer of seven point five million dollars for the technology. But Bleem didn't take the offer because their advisors said the technology was worth more around a hundred million.
1: Hmm.
0: Yeah, I think More I, bold claims. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I I I think the president probably shouldn't have listened to those people, but yeah. In 2001, Sony slaps Bleem with another lawsuit. This time they alleged patent infringement, which was the same tactic they used against Kinectics in the past. Bleem responded by countersuing Sony for anti-competitive behavior, which also cited a supposed incident from E3 of 1999, where Sony employees tried to have E3 remove Bleem's display from the expo. So, they said that, like, they had tried to bully them before by going to E3 and telling them to not let BLEAM uh, be on the show floor. We're getting into, like, Nintendo lawyer levels of petty here. E3, but instead of Electronic
1: Entertainment Expo, each E is just one letter in Bleem. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and... Bleem's also said that Sony was threatening stores into removing Bleem from shelves or not stocking the emulator at all. So, supposedly Sony was going to stores and saying, "Hey, uh, if you keep selling this, you might not be able to sell the actual PlayStation." Just, just, just letting you know. Judges tend not to look favorably on those kind of like
1: big bully intimidation tactics, which somehow continues
0: not to stop any of them. No. The constant legal actions ended up draining Bleem's funds, and the company was officially shut down in November of 2001. So Sony they just, just
1: won in a war of attrition.
0: Yeah, they just sued them out of existence, basically. A, a sad day. Rest, rest in peace, Bleem. Rest in peace, Bleem! Bleem! So that was kind of the end of the emulator. The brand might actually come back. It's not clear. So in January of 2001, a company called Pico Interactive acquired the brand name from the company's former president. Pico Interactive said at the time that they planned to sell officially licensed versions of legacy games from the NES, SNES, Sega Genesis, PS1, and other consoles bundled with an emulator to make them work on modern PCs. You know how uh, GOG sells old PC games kind of wrapped in like DOS box, like a DOS yeah. That It sounds like they wanted to try to do that, but for consoles. And it would all be officially licensed, so they would go to, you know, whoever owns the rights to those games and make sure it's legit. And they said they were also going to try to reach out to independent and homebrew developers to monetize their projects. So, you know, if maybe if someone had made a a homebrew PS1 game back in the day. They were going to try to maybe sell those. And so what year is this at this point? This is 2021.
1: Oh, oh, this is recent.
0: Yeah. And, and Pico already sells physical copies of games for legacy game consoles. So they're not like completely new to this. But this new online store that would have the BLEAM name would be completely digital. So that was announced in January of 2021. As we're recording this in... February of 2022 the store is not actually online yet it's not really clear when or if that's happening the store is actually at uh store.bleempowered.com amazing yes yeah, so oh my god they're copying like steam's domain
1: <laughs> introducing the bleem deck <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. it's just a playstation one but it's it's got like a kickstand
1: it's Ben Heck's uh, PlayStation Portable.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, I was I was about to say there were like displays you could buy that attached to the top of a PS One to make it like a laptop <laughs> yeah. form factor. That <laughs> that I imagine it would be like that. Yeah. So so that's the story of Bleem and Bleem, the less fun to say, Kinectics Virtual Game Station. I just I I really find these interesting because they were kind of this brief time when it seemed like commercial game emulators might have become a thing
1: especially because like the judges keep being like against the big corporations but the they just lose by by the legal pressure costing them too much financially to keep fighting the good fight even though the law seems to be on their side that they, they just don't have the resources to keep going
0: yeah they they won a lot of early victories but in the end, Connectix just thought it was easier to sell what they had to Sony, and Sony could kill it. And BLEAM was just such a small operation that they 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 couldn't take it. So, Katie, do you have anything to plug as we're as we're wrapping up here?
1: Yes, uh, I just released uh, a new game called Cold Light, uh, which is available at cold coldlight
0: Nice and it does it require bleem to run
1: unfortunately it
0: does not support bleem
1: ah uh, what a shame